Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is someone who I am very, very excited to have on. He's worked on so many incredible records with so many incredible artists. I don't know where to begin, so I'll just start listing some of them. Def Leppard, Rush, Dream Theater, Aerosmith, Seal, Mick Jagger. I mean, list goes on. Alice Cooper, Simple Plan, uh... I don't need to keep going. You get the picture. Richard Chicky, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, I was just talking to you before we started about how you travel a lot for work. And um, it, I travel a lot for work as well. And I am wondering, when you're traveling, do you, uh, do you have any rituals for maybe like feeling at home when you're not home or for acclimating yourself to a new environment? Does it discombobulate you at all? Do you mean an environment like a studio environment or an environment like a living environment? Anything, just like the whole idea of being gone from your own space for so long. Um, I've, I've been doing that for, uh, for quite some time. Uh, I, I don't really record a lot in um, in Canada. The last thing I recorded in Canada was uh, was Rush in 2011 uh, for Clockwork Angels. Other than that, I travel all the time. So um, it's one of those things that I'm kind of used to it um, from a um, from an environmental point of view, from a, um, a studio point of view. Uh, I will just bring music in that I've mixed plus plus other records I'm familiar with and just acclimate to the studio just do a lot of listening uh, before we get into the uh, uh, recording the setup process so I'm acclimated to the room's acoustics and how long does that usually take you you know what not long um, you know a lot of the uh, studios that uh, that that would be selected are you know, acoustically pretty well done. So it's not like, uh, it's, it's not really a negative thing. It's just getting, getting a feel for the room. And if I, I don't happen to have my monitor speakers with me, you know, I'll, it just takes some time a little bit longer, but it's, you know, it literally can just be a couple hours of hanging out and just checking out the acoustics of the room and listening to things. What kind of monitors are those that you would take with you? Um, I usually use, uh, I, I have a set of KRK E8Ts that I've had, um, geez, for an awful long time, for about 17 or 18 years, and I have three sets of those, and they're all getting very tired, so I, I've been uh, I've been looking for some new speakers lately, and I've been trying out a few different sets, and I haven't settled on anything yet, but I have a, I have a few that are 
at the uh, sort of that last tier of selection. So I'm getting close. Mind sharing what what's at the at the last tier? Um, well, right now uh, there is a set of uh, uh, Augsburger speakers that I like for uh, for midfields and uh, nearfields. Uh, I'm looking at a, a set of uh, Genelec uh, 8351s. Oh, and, a, nice. and, and a 7370 sub. Nice. Possibly two 7370 subs, depending on how loud I mix. I was, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of power. <laughs> <laughs> so if you aren't able to, to take those with you or rent them, um, do you have like a B list of monitors that you're okay with? Um, yeah, you know what? As long as there's a, as long as there's a full range of, as long as, long as they're full range and they sound good. I mean, you know, a lot of studios will have, say, uh, like Focals in them, uh, which uh, I used for a while, and, and they're and they sound fine. And, and again, I'm this is tracking versus uh, versus mixing. If I'm mixing, then I absolutely need to have speakers that are uh, that I'm familiar with. Um, so for tracking, as as long as we're sitting with full range speakers, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to something that's like like an NS10, which is a fine speaker to mix on, but it doesn't really extend down low enough to hear, uh, you know, everything that's going on in the uh, in the sort of the the sub sub region. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there was a a studio I worked at. Uh, Recently, uh, I recorded four songs for Alice Cooper, and I worked at a studio called The Salt Mine in Phoenix, which was a really uh, cool, vibey room. And, you know, I can't recall the exact particulars of the speakers, but these were uh, these were uh, large enough to be soffit mount design, like a 412s and a horn, and really... And these things sounded so good. They, they were one of the best-sounding large... Uh, speakers that I, that I think I've ever heard, and they were absolutely stunning and really easy uh, to get sounds with. So I actually used those uh, for the entire session. Just switch to a set of NS10s once in a while to uh, to check on a on a different perspective. So really, oh, I wish I knew what kind they were. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'll um, I'll reach out to the studio. Uh, to the studio owner and get refreshed because I'm doing a podcast and I'm being very vague and I don't mean to. So I'll I'll, I'll get you the I'll get you the information so you can post an update somewhere. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, for anyone curious because I know that there's going to be a lot of curious people. We're putting we'll put them in the uh, show notes for you guys. So don't don't worry. So when did the uh, traveling thing begin for you? I, I know I'm wondering because there was a while um, when I was. Uh, first starting to mix or work with bands where one of my goals was to get flown places to work with bands. Like Mm -hmm. that was, that was like, I wanted that to happen. I didn't want, I wanted someone else to pay for the ticket and the (laughs) hotel and to pay me to, I don't, I just wanted that. There was a goal and then it happened and I was really, really stoked about it. And uh, it was like, yes, feel good about it but it, but you've been doing that for years now when did how did that come about uh late 90s a uh, producer named marty frederickson I, I was working with a canadian guitar player named jeff healy and uh marty uh marty frederickson and marty is a guy that has a ton of credits as a songwriter and a producer and he was working with jeff healy as well excuse me and we uh, we uh had a really 
uh, really solid rapport, had a great time working together. And uh, he had uh, uh, he had mentioned, he's just like, hey, man, we're going to end up working together again sometime. And that's, you know, that's something in the industry. You know, you hear that a bunch yeah. of times and you go, hey, that's awesome. You know, and if it happens, that's great. And, you know, if, if it doesn't, and you know, it was one of those things that I, I more wasn't expecting the call than I was. And uh, I got a call about, yeah, I don't know, maybe nine or ten months later, and uh, uh, he just uh, started talking to me about uh, about a, a, a project he's working on. He didn't tell me the name of the band. He just said he liked the way I, I recorded drums and asked me if I wanted to do it. And uh, and it was a project in the U.S. and I had a work visa to go down into the U.S. So I I was like, sure, I'll, absolutely, I'll do it. And I, then I decided to ask on the project, and it was uh, and it was Aerosmith. So, um, oh, yeah, just, so I took, I said, yeah, happened, just happened to be Aerosmith, just happened to be Aerosmith because <laughs> he had a, a long working relationship with them. So, uh, I went down to, uh, to work with the band and that record, uh, it was just push play and, uh, ended up taking about, um, 11 months to do. So that, that kind of, that's kind of what started my, uh, consistent traveling adventures because we were, we were all over the place immediately after that we were back and forth, uh, uh, we were working in LA with uh, with Mick Jagger, and then went over to England, and then you know it's just a lot of traveling, which was great. So eleven months on a record, um, that that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen too often anymore. But if I understand correctly, you did just spend ten months on Dream Theater, right? Correct. Yeah, it it is rare. I, Eleven months and ten ten months for Dream Theater for the Astonishing. So those those are definitely um, those are rarities. You know, in, especially in the, uh, the the climate as it is now with uh, with budgeting, you know. So um, it it you know when you get a project of of that magnitude, then it, it just it takes time. And do you prefer spending that kind of time, or are you or do you like the new kind of get in get out type thing? Um, no preference either way. It's more of a quality for me. It's a quality issue uh, when. Um, when I was recording uh, Snakes and Arrows with Rush, I think we did the whole record. We tracked the whole record in six weeks, right? So it's, uh, but but it's great record and great guys to work with and great players. So it's it's not really a, um, it's not really a, an issue of how long something takes. Although, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, with really great musicians. So I I I think. Uh, I would personally, I would probably not really enjoy if I had to do, uh, say, 10 or 11 months and it was uh, uh, under trying musical conditions, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do tend to work with some of the best of the best. Is that is that something you were looking for or did you kind of fall into that? Um, well, you know what? it. I think it's something that... Um, I, it was it was a goal, you know. I I, I want to work with uh, uh, with people and players that are at the top of their game because it's 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 really inspiring and it, and it pushes me to do the uh, the best work that that I can do as well. So um, I I think it's just one of those symbiotic relationships that um, 
You know, you work with somebody uh, that you know uh, work with a great player, have fun doing it, and you know therefore they also have a great experience. So, so I get a call back, and and it's great to go back and forth, and and you know be able to have uh, a few different bands that you know we cycle through. Uh, you know they they go through their uh, record promote tour. Uh, take a break. They go through that cycle. So you know, the, I have uh, some clients that we go through that cycle still to this day, and you know, it's really fantastic because you know, it's like you, it's like you have these little families, and you you join the family for a while, and uh, then you take a break, and then you come back. So it's it's fantastic. Not never long enough to hate your brother or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got called back, so I guess my you know, I guess that's yeah, good. Guess I guess not. that's good, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, when who would you say was your first breakthrough artist that you landed? Uh, well, I, I would say the first major uh, artist, breakthrough artist, would would have been Aerosmith. That was the first international artist that I scored a number one uh, song at rock radio in America. So I, I would say Aerosmith. I mean, in Canada, I like I had mentioned, I I had a fair bit of history with uh, with Jeff Healy, and I worked with a couple other uh, Canadian artists. And uh, you know, it was kind of uh, the Healy camp. You know, they they had considerable success uh internationally with uh, some movie soundtracks uh, i think they'd done roadhouse and and the manager uh had the uh wherewithal to want to connect up with uh marquee level producers and and i was exposed to uh to them and and like i said marty fredrickson was one of them and uh you know i i would i would attribute that whole uh, environment to for being my breakthrough, going from Healy over to Aerosmith, and then after that, it was a a next level up. And are you a musician? Uh, I play guitar. I don't play guitar a whole lot these days, but I do play. Um, it, and do you feel do you feel that to be a good engineer producer that it uh, that it requires being a musician? Uh, I I think be able to speak the same language as what the uh, player is. Uh, uh, what the player is understanding, I think that's that's the most uh, important aspect. Um, uh, as as an example, if I'm uh, uh, cutting solos with uh, with John Petrucci, you know, I can I can't play like him, but I, I understand what he's doing, and we'll talk about what and say he's doing a fill, and there's an issue in the fill, and I can tell him, well, there's this spot here, this spot here where you switch to triplets at this bar, and you know, we we will speak in musical terms. So I, th I think that having the musical terminology and knowledge is, is, uh, makes the session go smoother. One of our original podcasts was called uh, Musical Translator. I think it's our third episode or second episode. I don't remember at this point. Um, but it's exactly about that, how one of the producer's job is to be able to interpret and translate whatever... Um, whatever a musician is intending to do because you know they don't always speak recording terms they don't they don't always know recording speak and they they don't even always have the technical musical terms down uh sometimes they just have artistic terms or sometimes they'll say things like i want it to sound like it's in space and in reality there's no sound in space so it's like what you want it to sound silent of course not so you need to you need to learn to speak mu musician, and uh, it's a lot easier, I think, if you play an instrument or two or three. Uh, I, sure. I would 
I would agree with that. Um, for, to segue off a, a slight bit, um, you had said something that was uh, that that caught my attention as far as uh, be able to speak musician speak and then be able to speak uh, what I'll call producers speak uh, as as an engineer. Uh, what what I found has worked uh, really well is the producers saying I want result X, and the um, artist is saying, you know, I also I also want a result, and we'll say it's result Y, and uh, from a technical point of view, neither party really needs to know that, you know, well I'm going to select this microphone because blah 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 blah. Uh, it is preparation and be able to keep the creative flow going. So I, I'll use my technical chops to keep the creative flow going and otherwise mm -hmm. stay, stay out of the way. So the producer and the artist can liaise from a creative uh, aspect. And uh, uh, for me... I, I would be doing the technical part, record it properly, uh, get, say, a sound, um, say, whether it's a drummer or a guitar player, that they, they think that their tone, the tone is representative of what they're, uh, what they're looking for. So they feel good about what they're recording, you know, and in turn, if they feel good about what they're hearing from a technical point of view, i.e., it sounds good to them, then you know they can just focus on working with the producer and they can get a great, uh, uh, great performance. And what do you find usually to be some of the bigger challenges in, I guess, translating between the two? Depends on what instrument. Um, say, uh, uh, I mean, with guitar players, I get hired by a lot of guitar players. Um, I'm a guitar player myself, and I kind of understand. Uh, guitar speak, you know, whether, uh, uh, you know, I, for the first full album I did with Dream Theater, John Petrucci said, I want my record, I want my guitar to sound like chocolate cake, you know, and when, when he, when he posted that online, I think it broke the internet for a few hours, you know, so, you know, but it was, you know, what he's, he's saying is he wanted it to have this richness and full body, you know, and it, he wanted it to be delicious, you know, so he wanted it, essentially he wanted it to be a satisfying guitar tone, uh, you know, and, 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 and it was fun. It's, it, you know, it was one of those things that was a fun challenge. Is this what you're looking for? And, you know, it's nice. His, his guitar tone is heavy, but it's not a typical all amid sucked out metal tone. So he's, he's mm -hmm. got an interesting approach to the way he, uh, the way he likes to hear himself. And, and that's a, that's a great challenge, you know, and, and we have a lot of fun working on guitar sounds. So, um, you know, and I think that that's the type of thing that that process is something that's uh, that's really it's in, intrinsic to each player. You know, and it, it's slightly different, but they all really have the same goals. You know, and the challenge is is to interface with everybody's personality and understand. You know, there I've worked with guys that say I've got one amp and we're going to make it happen, and then I've also worked with players where we have ten different amps mic'd up, and what are we doing to combine? You know, I'm going to use amps one and three for uh, for this tone, or uh, you know, amp two, three, and seven. Does that work? You know, and to be able to sort of be preemptive and be ahead of what the 
artist is, uh, when he says he's looking for something, to kind of understand what he's looking for and get to it as quick as possible. Um, what do you do when you're in a situation where the guy says, I have one amp and we're going to make it happen, but that amp sucks or it just isn't right? Um, haven't Or does ha- that not really happen in your situation? It hasn't happened. The uh, last time somebody said we uh, that we have one amp and we're going to make it happen was actually the astonishing and John uh, John was bringing in prototypes of uh, of the uh, JP2C, the Mesa JP2C, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's his signature guitar amp. So understandably, you know, he wanted to use it on the record, and it's a great sounding amp. And uh, we had the luxury of um, the amp was still in development when uh, the prototypes were coming in. So uh, I would uh, work with him on some guitar sounds and and his uh, and his tech, Maddie. Uh, Schieferstein, and he, um, yeah, we would just talk about it. Say, you know, it could kind of use this uh, as far as a, as a voicing or an EQ curve, and uh, you know that would go to Mesa, and they would uh, do a few adjustments and send another amp over. But ultimately, we ended up using one amp for the entire record. Um, I don't really have somebody that comes in with, uh, uh, with like a mud tone amp and say, "Hi, make this sound." Amazing. So yeah, <laughs> that, that's probably a good thing. When I asked you the question, I realized I, I bet you John Petrucci doesn't come in with shitty gear. Not a lot. No, he doesn't, he doesn't have no. any shitty gear. So <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. No. It's, it's bad for my. Uh, it's really bad uh, for my pocketbook because you know usually after I, it's like you know I really feel like I need this and this and this so. Which I, which I shouldn't do, but I do. So do you have a massive collection back in Canada as a result of all these no. sessions? You know what? I have I have a few amps. I have a few amps and quite a few guitar pedals that I've uh, saved over the years to, uh, you know, I, I'll do a, some, some of the sessions that I've done. You know, the guitar players will have some uh, good... Uh, good amplifiers and and guitars and uh, and uh, you know and then they'll hook up sort of a a staple of guitar pedals and I have a few you know a few oldies and some weird kind of pedals that are a little, little different sound. I say hey let's try this for a texture that for a texture but you know these days there's a, there's a lot more gear out there I think than there used to be so everybody seems to have a lot of everything so there's no there's no shortage of gear so one thing i'm wondering is you work with so many great musicians um what is there anything that you find that they all have in common like any common traits that that you just notice that these dudes who are just like olympic athletes on their instruments all share you know that is a really great question the uh the biggest uh, the biggest attribute that I could give to the majority of artists that I work with uh, in the quote unquote the upper echelons is that they are not chasing success. They're being creative and they're doing what they want to do to express their uh, uh, their musical outlet at, at the time of their lives of what, you know, what they're thinking. Hey, I feel like doing this. I want to do a concept record or I feel like doing, you know, I, I, I'm going to write these songs and they might not be, they might not be commercially viable to what the current trend is, but they record these anyways because that's what they feel like doing and they want to create and they want to extend themselves and not trying to chase their, not trying to chase their tail or chase a dream. And I think that, 
those factors uh, open up a lot of creative possibilities that um, just because the trends in the industry uh, discourage. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, well, you know, I, I need to... I need to have a number one hit that's on, on iTunes. I need to do this and I need to do that. Where uh, previously, and I would be dating myself, but to previously in bands, say from the, the 70s, where you would have a lot of uh, uh, creativity going on, that artists artists would just do what they do, and, art, and record labels used to stand behind them and allow them to develop and mature. And that part of record companies has... Uh, been reduced significantly, so it's uh, it's very fortunate that that there are bands that still want to do that and say, you know what, screw this, we're going to go in this direction and we're going to go big, and this is what we want to do, and it's an expression of who they are at the time. Well, yeah, back in the seventies, wasn't it not unusual to for a band to have like three or four albums, maybe that didn't do so well before they hit and still have label support that whole time. Agreed. I mean, Rush, Rush has sold millions and millions of records, and had uh, uh, had they not had the support of the people around them up until 2112, I mean, they had they had uh, success with Fly By Night and some touring, but, I mean, Caress of Steel uh, was uh, comparatively not as... Uh, successful a record from a numbers point of view but it was still it was a great record and uh i mean the b side of uh caressa steel is a you know is a, was a massive undertaking for its day so but they really hit their stride as of 2112 and you know th that luxury is a, is a rarity nowadays and that's unfortunate because there are a lot of young bands that uh that have potential and may never see the light of day just because of the uh current industry climate yeah i think that they need to try to take the artist development part of it on their own these days yes um do as much of it on their own as possible yes and that's the you know the uh there used to be the uh there was a very frustrating filter uh years ago where it was you know you you had to have a uh record company sign you there was an a and r guy that had to come out and see you or you had to have a lawyer mm -hmm. submit your demo to uh, oh, yeah. uh to a record company so th there were these processes that uh that were roadblocks of sorts but they were also filters in that uh people that didn't have the wherewithal to work through those barriers would uh, wouldn't be able to break through. Now everybody can record records, which is great that uh, that the playing field has been leveled. However, the bad thing is is that everybody can record records. So so the it's saturated, and it's really difficult to say, uh, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to 500 demos this week. It's it's literally not possible to just be listening to demos all the time, looking for things. So. I 100% agree with you that the more an artist can can streamline what they're trying to say musically and to and to get themselves put together as a viable product and I hate to use product when it comes to music but you know that would be a it would be a disservice to uh, to not say that, hey, you know, we're looking to uh, to make a career at what we do yeah. as musicians. Uh, you know, if you're making a career, you're making money, and if you're making money, you're selling a product. You know, it's just trying to maintain the integrity of the product as best you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you've dealt with some pretty big personalities too, I'm sure, mm -hmm. um, with in in dealing with 
success and greatness, obviously there's going to be, you know, big talent, big personalities, big success. Um, what's your, how do you, how do you balance that? How do you make that work for you, especially with maybe vocalists or whatever? I know that, that for some up and coming producers, the first time that they ever experience a big personality, it throws them off and they don't, they don't always know how to deal with it. How did you acclimate to that? And what, what's your MO for dealing with, you know, one of those larger than life types? Um, that, that, that's a great question. The, um, you know, I, I think that your question is a human nature question. Uh, it's a human nature question. And I think that in any case to have a successful relationship and not, not music industry at all, all relationships is mutual respect. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, um, that you have to gain, uh, say from, uh, from an artist that, of, of the magnitude that you're speaking of the uh, you have to gain their trust and their respect quickly and uh, you have to gain their respect and trust and you have to give them respect and trust as well. And when they feel good and they don't, f- and they feel that you're there to uh, help them achieve something greater, then, then, they they usually get it. Uh, there's very rare. I it's very rare that I've run into somebody that uh, that is uh, that's self defeating because they they would mm-hmm. they wouldn't really be they wouldn't be successful for twenty or thirty years if they've if they were self defeating. No, of course not. Mm-hmm. One thing that a lot of our subscribers ask um, is. I I have a I'm working with a local band and they have these really bad riffs and I want to tell them to change them or write them new riffs and they don't want to listen. How do I get them to take my suggestions? And we always say, well, you got to build trust with them. No matter who the client is, whether it's a huge client or a local band, they need to trust you before they're going to accept your ideas. Agreed, agreed. And part of the uh, you know having somewhat of a uh, having somewhat of a track record helps. Having no track record is more difficult, and that's that's kind of just the way things are. So uh, it takes it takes work and and time to achieve uh, some level uh, of trust to say, hey, you know, when I uh, when I worked on this project, and let's say I worked on Project X, and Project X sold one, two, five, ten million records, uh, then that's it. to make a suggestion. Say, well, when I worked on that record, this worked pretty well. Then that's really it. That's up to the the artist to say. Well, you know, I that is that might work for me. Uh, and th- again, they have to know that you're there to help them. And if they feel that uh, if they don't feel that you're there to help them, uh, it could be a poor match of personalities, or you know, it could be that the artist is is looking uh, for something else or or wants to take a uh, a different direction toward their success. And that's something that, from an engineer, you're never going to bat a thousand ever. Nobody's going to bat a thousand doing anything. So, you know, it's one of those things that if, if somebody's decided that they want to go in a particular direction and you don't see eye to eye on it, then you know, from a from an engineer perspective, I'd be well. You know what? This this might not be the right thing for me. You know, this might not be the right thing for me, and uh, I'm going to go and work with this other artist over here. You know, and and certainly, though, I think the worst thing to do is to put yourself in an environment that's compromising and end up with uh, either something that the artist isn't happy with, or you're not happy with, 
uh, as as an engineer, and it's kind of a lose lose situation as opposed to being in a win-win situation, which is, uh, from an engineer's point of view, that's what we're trying to create. We're trying to create something where everybody's happy and, uh, and you know, we all, we all go to the parade in the same, in the same limo. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go about winning trust quickly if it's a brand new session? Um, it literally is doing, uh, first off, it's doing a good job and being prepared. You know, that, and that can't be understated, that having everything prepared... Uh, Taking up, say for me, I'll, I'll do my triage with the producer well in advance, and know what the uh, know what the lay of the land is, what they're looking to achieve within X amount of time, and uh, and then when I deal with the band, you know, I'll deal with them uh, for what their idiosyncrasies are. The you know, i.e., is the drummer what what is he looking for as far as uh, kit? Is there something that he needs certain? Is he looking for something in particular in his setup that he's comfortable with? You know, there's all all of those things. Or you know, hey, you know, I don't really like the mics in my face. Or you know, the, it, it varies widely, and, and all of the opinions are fine. But I think just gaining gaining trust is by far the the paramount thing to do, and and it really comes naturally. Again, it's a human nature thing. We're making them feel comfortable, uh, not being, uh, not being starstruck, uh, so that you can focus on, uh, uh, focus on your work and knowing your stuff, knowing what they're looking for, and be able to deliver it quickly and efficiently, and having them feel comfortable and confident with your work. I feel like being prepared. Um it, it sounds so simple, but so many people don't do it. But it's, you know, even if you're just working with a local band, it's as easy as going to their shows, looking them up on YouTube, talking to them on Skype about what they want, going to where they rehearse, like doing all kinds of prep work just so that when the gig happens, you're ready to go. I mean, I feel like with a with an established artist, it's easier because they, they're pro, so they know how to... Uh, they know how to communicate and they have their whole, you know, they have their whole back catalog already. So it's a lot easier to, to talk to them. But, um, even with locals, you can do research. You can come prepared. Agreed. There's no reason not to. Agreed. And, and, you know, if you're, you're advised to go and see, uh, an artist, uh, in a, in a live environment is, is, is valuable in that, um, the artist may say they're looking for a particular direction, uh, to say tonally, they're looking for a particular direction, and you know you might go to uh, uh, you might go to a uh, a show and say, "Wow, the guitar player uh, guitar player has a mud tone amplifier live, and and he is looking for the uh, John Petrucci sound in the studio, and it might be an idea to go. You know what? I'm just going to have a JP2C set up. I'm going to have that set up for him because he's saying he wants that." And I could see he plays the way he's playing that way, but he doesn't have that tonality. And if he's looking to be satisfied in that area, because, hey, you know, I just happen to have this. Do you want to check it out? Right. And just have that door open and have it. And it's all mic'd up. And coincidentally, it sounds killer. Might plug in and go, dude, that's the tone I'm looking for. And, you know, you're the suddenly the engineer, you're the hero and you're prepared and you've done your homework ahead of time. Right. So I, I agree with you doing Doing preemptive research is uh, is really important. Yeah, it can't can't really beat it. Um, it. So I have some questions here from the audience for you. 
Okay. That uh, they uh, they were very excited that you were coming here. Here's one from Matt Brown, which is, Hi, Richard. Do you use templates or start each mix from scratch? Are there any go-to EQ and compressors that seem to work in every style of music you mix or and do you mix from drummer or audience perspective? Okay, those are a bunch of questions. All right, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, I use templates. Um, I will set them up. I have different templates for different styles of music. So, yes, but they do vary. And I've been known to, uh, if I'm not getting results that I want, I typically will frustrate uh, the artist and say, listen, the first song is the longest because... You know, there is so much processing power and so much versatility today uh, available in the mix environment that, you know, I don't want to shortchange, uh, I don't want to shortchange the, uh, the artist and say, oh, I, I think he's going to be, uh, pre he's going to be template number four. Let's just use that. So, you know, I, I have been known to start down uh, the road on a template and go, I don't like this and I'll scrub it and I'll start again. So just to try and get a, uh, fresh perspective and try a few new things. With respect to uh, EQs, um, I mean there there are a lot of great ones out there. Um, I use a, a lot of a lot of software from uh, Brainworks and Universal Audio. Uh, they're they're tied into each other in a lot of cases, and they also have separate products. And uh, both of those companies are doing really really fantastic work. Um, as is Waves and McDSP have been doing great work for years. There, so I, I wish I could tell you, yes, I only use this plugin or that plugin. There's also Sonox, uh, Sonox, which is uh, I've been using since uh, since they had ported their uh, software over from the uh, Sony uh, digital consoles eons ago. So I, I use a lot of different EQs, uh, and it just depends on the style and. And what I'm looking for, what I can tell you is I have a tendency to use a higher quantity of plugins, but they're doing uh, less work than when I used to than when I used to mix in um, in analog. So I, I would use a, an EQ, do a bit of cuts, and then I'll use another one, do boosting, and then so like a soft shaping when maybe it's a tilt EQ or that sort of thing to to. Uh, to sculpt sound to get things to fit together really well, so that's uh, you know it, it's it's a it's a moving target, and, and I can't remember what the last question was. Audience perspective, right? Yeah, uh, right. the drums. I mix yeah. audience perspective. Uh, it feels very odd to me to listen to drums that are drummers' perspective. So I I think it's just from going to so many concerts that I kind of prefer to the drum kit to follow what the drummer's playing when like Makes when I'm sense. when I'm watching him. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one from Eric Schultek. Big picture question. When you're approached by a project and hear the demo slash pre-pro, how do you conceptualize the mix? And what are the priority aspects you focus on when you first hear a project? That's a, that's a great question, Eric. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is I ask the band, I, I literally, I had a band not long ago, uh, approach me from overseas and they said, Hey, we, uh, we would love to, uh, work with you and uh, how much does it cost and how much time and they started getting into the thick of it and I went well thanks thanks for your question send me some songs and 
send me some songs first. It, it was, it's kind of, all the other questions are irrelevant if it's uh, something, yep. <laughs> everything, everything, everything I, is... I know, it, where, I know where this is going. Right? It's all irrelevant if, if it's just kind of, wow, these, are, these songs are, they, they require a lot of work. I mean, I can, it's really hard to uh, say I'm going to produce something if, uh, if the songs uh, require more work than the actual recording. You know, so that is something that is uh, that that's it's it's absolutely critical, and and I think just getting a dialogue with the uh, with the artist and, and doing a, a little bit of homework, uh, going back to uh, what you had uh, originally mentioned, doing a little bit of homework, and it's really not hard to see where the artist is trying to go and what they're trying to achieve. And uh, that, that would be, for me, when I get demos in, if the demos are, are really solid, well, they're, they're really solid because you can feel what the artist's direction and expectation is. You know? And I, I think that it's, if you get those, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had any of those demos, you get them in, you just kind of go, I'm not getting it. Yeah. You know, you get them in, you go, I don't know if I want to record this. I, I don't really get it. Well, you're not getting it because the artists themselves don't get it. And they're not translating. It's not translating, right? So uh, mm-hmm. unless there's something that you really can pull out of it and you feel it and the artist is missing it, you know, it's one of those things that it's usually 90% that the artist, they're going to get it before before the producer does, you know, that they already know where they, they want to go. And it might be something where, you know, they, it's like, you know, they're going down this direction, and but they're not really saying that. And as, from an engineer's point of view, you just kind of, I see where they're going, and you just help them go down that path, and they and they just go, yeah, man, how did you know? Because it's something they were saying musically but weren't verbalizing. Great answer. Here's one from Brian Decker, which is, while mixing Rush, how did you address preserving the band's history while mixing them for modern audiences? And yes... I'd fanboy hard if you had Rush on Nail the Mix. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's, uh, that's, that's a cool question. You know, with Rush, when I was mixing, uh, when I would do, say, uh, Snakes, and, Snakes and Arrows is a, is a good example. The level, uh, the, first off, I have never, I don't use any drum samples on Neil at all. Neil's kit is Neil's kit. Uh, regardless of uh, what current trends are for people to, you know, hey, wow, that's a really great drum kit. Let's put in Superior Drummer, you know, or or Slate Trigger or whatever. You know, when it came to Rush, didn't do it. Uh, Neil had a specific set of guidelines. Doesn't want it. Doesn't want to hear about it. Neil is Neil. And uh, and that is something to be respected. And from an engineer, from a mixing point of view, absolutely. So... To uh, to say that Rush is going to have a you know like a completely contemporary triggered ish type of tone not going to happen and uh, that's something that you know s- some of the listener base might have been expecting something else but you know what it's Rush and it's just something that is the band has a very very strong idea of how they want to be presented and that's something to be respected and that's why we've been working. Uh, you know, we've worked together now for to 13 years, I think it is, about 13 years. So, you know, that's uh, it's it literally is. It's a mutual respect issue and uh, just trying to make them sound great and 
capturing and being prepared and have, well, those guys are really funny. So it's, you know, try, try and keep up with the jokes, you know, so it's, <laughs> they're, they're just awesome to work with. So that is, that is how to do it and how to keep them in modern times. You know, everything mixing is done, uh, was, uh, mixes that I submitted to mastering were, you know, minus 17 luffs. So not compressed, not overly loud and, you know, wow. keep keeping their heritage true to what they are. Great. So Charlie Williamson is wondering, when mixing Petrucci's guitar tone, how do you fit it in such a dense mix and still manage to retain the meat and beefiness of the tone? That's 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 a great question, John. Uh, uh, the funny thing is, is um, I, I've heard John play through. You know, I I would come into uh, into the kitchen area at the studio, and John is. Uh, uh, John's practicing, and he was practicing through this little tiny, I, I don't know the model, I think it was a little Roland rehearsal type unit, and it has a little click track built in, and he's doing these absolutely insane riffs, and then he would move in and do some, uh, you know, heavier guitar riffs, right, and and I'm just making a coffee, one of one of a thousand for the day, and uh, you know, you I like would, coffee? I would, yeah, a little bit, and uh, I love it too. Yeah, and and you know, he's playing through this little three-inch speaker, and it's like, dun, 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 dun. and it's so heavy, and you know, really, what it is is it's heavy because John's heavy. You know, he knows he has an understanding of how to how to make his playing blend in with the with the players around him. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, getting the guitar tone. It's funny. You can go from amp to amp to amp, and it always sounds like him. Really, sounds like him a lot. So it's Do, John doesn't is a lot John. of it have to do with? Doesn't a lot of it also have to do with the arrangement? Like they just are master arrangers. So yes, they yes, work their music in a way that the guitar fits. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's, uh, I mean, looking at the way the, the, the not going too far off into another direction, but, you know, if you would look at, say, the way Jordan plays with uh, John is that, he, you know, he meshes right in with what John's doing uh, and vice versa. And, uh, you know, listen to, say, what Mangini does. And Mangini, Mangini's playing very much vocalizes uh, you know, like what we would do to describe guitar or, uh, or, or keyboards with our mouths when we would make it into some sort of phonetic riff. If you do that, you could literally take your phonetic riff and pop it on the drum kit and it fits in one way or another, you know? So he has that understanding to vocalize what the other players are doing. So it's a very symbiotic relationship where they all kind of work together. And, you know, I mean, that's part of the progressive nature of, of, of what they do. So, you know, it's, for John, it's, it's get, you know, get great guitar tone, capture what he's hearing. Um, when we were doing, uh, when we were doing guitar sounds, I had John tilt his 412 cabinet and put it right at his face so that he could hear what the mics are hearing. And, and John is a master of tone and he, you know, he understands, you know, how to set up his amp and how to get the, guitar and amp to speak well together. And so he would get this really ridiculously good guitar tone just by standing in front of the amp. And then, you know, that would be handed off to me to say, you know, that really great tone, make sure it makes it all the way to the DAW and then all the way to the record. Mm -hmm. No, no big challenge. That, <laughs> I mean, you know what though? I, I feel like um, that's, that's the kind of challenge I like in the studio because there's nothing quite like working with a player who's great, who knows how to dial great tones, because then it's like, 
you can just do your job as an engineer rather than having to try to fix something. Um, your job then becomes to capture something. Sure. Which I think is great. Yeah, and, and it's awesome. And you know what? All all artists are going to be different to some extent, but you know they all have um, they all have a similar thought that they want to be captured. You know, they want to have want to be captured with their integrity intact and be able to say what they want to say musically and emotionally. So that's really from from an engineer's point of view. That's that's what we want to do and do it as technically as well as we can. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's that that's the gig. So that's what we do. Here's one from Zachary Sullivan, which is, Hey, Richard, what's one thing you would tell your younger self in terms of what you've learned in production, mixing, and mastering over the years? My younger self. Let me see. I would say, uh, you know, it it took a while to not sweat the small stuff. And uh, that is, uh, that that really is the, one of the keys to, you know, have everybody comfortable, uh, which, which, I think I latched on to it at an early age, but it's one of those things. I I, I kind of wish that you know I'd done it right from the start because for me to engineer, I didn't I didn't go to a school. I was self taught. You know, I I didn't have the good fortune that a lot of uh, uh, people have these days, where they have somebody with experience to say, hey, yeah, uh, you know, you might want to do this or you might want to try that. It literally was a, a a trial and error. Listen to records, talk to people, try and discover uh, new things, and you know new methods and experiment, but consequently that also le- left a, a fresh slate. So could try and uh, expand into unexplored areas a little easier. Well, let me ask you a question. I know we're doing audience questions, but the fact that you're self-taught and didn't go to school, typically people in the older studio uh, system before, you know, before now, uh, people would go to school and then an internship and then jump up to assistant and then, you know, climb up that little ladder. How, how did you get in without a school? How did you make that work? Okay. Um, well, first off, um, the previous era, there were actually, there were no schools. You would get a job at a studio and you would be, uh, you might clean up the studio at night and, uh, uh, clean out the coffee machine and get everything set up for the session the next day. And you would actually never see anybody when you first started working. And it was often for next to no money. And then you possibly might get on to a day shift uh, where you were, you're a runner. You weren't even a second engineer, you're a runner. So you're going out to get, you might go out to get food, equipment, but, but you're actually being graded on how accurate and meticulous and timely you know, you're you're being graded on how well you do these things, and even though they're kind, of, they might be kind of crappy things that people don't like to do. Uh, I have to go and pick up uh, meals at three different locations and stand in line. You know, and it's one of those things of, you know, how do you take adverse conditions that are right, and then you might get in a position where. Uh, you might be in a position where it's like, hey, you know what? Go get me some mic stands. Go do this. And, you know, do you, do you just toss them on the floor? Do you set them up? You know, do you get cables and you just throw them on the ground and they're a knotted mess? <laughs> right? Yep. So it's, and, and these all seem like small things, but in a, uh, in a world of things being meticulous and in a world of high pace and of celebrity, all these things really matter. And this is, uh, for, for the way I did it, is I was recording my own music. And uh, uh, when I would take my demos into a studio, there were a lot of things I did not like about them. 
And but there were some things that I did, and I would say, well, I, I kind of want this, or I kind of want that drum sound. That I know it's not quite right, but there's something I really like about this. And you know, I would end up bringing in gear for engineers. Say, well, this is how I did it. And I'd be showing the engineer how I hooked up the guitar, and and I said, well, I was mixing in a bit of DI for this, and then you know, I was running my amp through a. Uh, I, I ran the DI through a digital delay to make it a little bit later because uh, it sounded like a stuck flanger, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just really strange technical things. And and I read a lot about recording, like the RCA handbook, all that sort of thing. And I uh, read the SSL manuals on how to route and how to do gain structure and on large-scale consoles. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I self-educated, so it... it because I didn't go to a school, that that, that doesn't mean I, I I don't have a grip on on the uh, on the technical aspect. I've always been geeky. I built mic preamps and you know, had some electronics, quite a bit of electronics background to build things and built uh, built guitar pedals and all that sort of stuff. So you know, it's just taking the technical information and then interfacing it with you know being able to work with people in the studio well. And I think that's really the trick, and that that's what people are ultimately being taught, is getting your knowledge and then how to apply that to interface with a bunch of other people. And taking it back to what you said about wrapping cables and things, that that ties back to what you said before about winning trust. Um, if if uh, you can't trust someone to tie cables properly or to set up mic stands properly, how are you going to trust them to track or edit a vocal? Agreed. Agreed, and you know, still to this, uh, uh, you know, to this day, I will go and, uh, you know, we, we would be working on, uh, we'd be working on uh, some guitar solos, and I would go out and make, uh, make John a coffee, come in and give it to him, and, and you know, and John would just laugh and just tell the assistant, saying, "Hey, man, how come your coffee's not as good as this?" You know, and it was, and, and it's, it's kind of, it's funny, but it's just kind of. You know, that's how much coffee experience that I have, and I still do to this day. You know, that's that's it's just. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just it's one of those things that it, it's it's just part it's it's part of the hang, and and the hang is super important. And if somebody is feeling that school is going to is is going to negate the need for the hang, they're wrong because it it's it music industry is just like any other industry is that you have to interface with people, you know, whether you work at a bank or you uh you know, you work in customer service at uh, at BMW bringing cars in and out of the shop, you know, or you make records, the hang is the thing and it's really important. I think it's in some ways as important as your actual abilities. Agreed. Because, um, I mean, you could be the most killer engineer in the world, but if people can't hang out with you for 8 to 12 hours a day, you're not going to get hired. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, I mean, I have some I have some pretty good stories of, you know, people that went to, uh, did their thing, and they, they figured that they, they didn't need to do uh, a, a quote-unquote assistant work, and... Uh, you know, they lost out on some pretty good gigs as a result. Yeah, I think I think we've all seen that. Yeah. So, one more question, last question, and this one is from Luke Morales, which is, how's the mentality in mixing Mangini's drums? There's so many elements to pan and different tones. How do you approach the craziness? The craziness is um, the craziness is not as crazy as as you would think. Um, just watching Mike play. 
there's a you you get an understanding of what he's of what he's doing. Let me give you an example. If he's playing, um, if he's playing a uh, some sort of a riff, uh, and he's locking up with a with a guitar player, and he's doing a uh, he's vocalizing a riff with the guitar player, he might do something where he's doing these China symbols, and then all of a sudden he's moving off, and then he'll hit a little four inch splash in there, or a little tiny stack, and it goes by so fast that by when he's when it's soloed out, you hear it, but in the context of the mix that that little tiny splash might have to be exaggerated so that it speaks and really that's uh uh that's the uh the type of thing is to take what he's trying to say and exaggerate it enough that it feels it feels normal within the context of a mix not unlike say when we listen to the radio and you uh uh, you listen to a guy talking on on the radio. Uh, he's doing a commercial, and you know he. he you hear him. And he's talking about something. He says it's forty nine ninety five, but people don't talk like that in real world. But when we listen no, to they it, certainly don't. When we listen to it on the radio, we actually don't notice it. We don't go, "Oh my god, that really sounds odd." But because he's delivering it in a, in a in a aggressive and salesman kind of way, we go, oh wow, that's forty nine ninety five. But if we hear it in real world, we go, wow, that really you know. If you were, you know, you can imagine some girl going out on a blind date and say, you know, <laughs> where do you want to go out? I could really use going out for a steak. What do you think? You know, that would that'd be really <laughs> odd, right? You know, so. Do you know what I mean? It's context. Yes. <laughs> so if with Mangini's kit, watching him and understanding what he's doing and then being able to place it within the context of a mix with a lot of things around him is what the approach is. And it's the same with Neil. And really, it's the same with, with all musicians is understanding what they're doing and then putting it in context. You do a killer voiceover voice, by the way. <laughs> well, it's just... That's how much silly. That's how much silliness we can do in the studio. <laughs> I was gonna say if this production thing ever doesn't work out, man. Like, I mean, you sounded legit. You sounded great. <laughs> I'll mix your song for forty-seven ninety-five. <laughs> that I'm blown away. <laughs> well, Richard, thank you so much for coming on and uh, taking the time sharing with our audience and just being so open about everything. I'm very thankful, very appreciative. I've Cheers. had a great time talking to you. Cheers, man. Me, me as well. I had a great time. Thank you very much for having me. And, uh, you know, best of luck to you and, uh, you know, and everybody that's subscribing. You know, uh, I hope that uh, everyone's learning a lot from your program because you're doing an awesome job. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Cheers. We'll be in touch. Cheers. Thanks. Bye, everybody. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloom Microphones. Heirloom Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry. A triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Erlund, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. 
to get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.